Okay. Uh, I have to say that this is a very fascinating tape. And, uh, you know, you catch a moment in time, and as I've said uh, for so many years, we uh, live with the feeling that life will remain constant. And that's a healthy feeling. A child, I've often said this, that a child, if you want to measure a healthy childhood, it's that the child has a feeling that his parents will always be there, his joy of life will always be there. That's the way childhood should be. Uh, later in life, this is what I spoke about when I spoke about the, the Joe Dimaggio eulogy. Later in life, we have to face the realities of life and death and illness and man's constant concern and problems and decisions. And as the Rev used to say, that the greatest matter, the Rev always raised a philosophical problem, how we're allowed to daven, a little puny man to face a great God. And the Rev used to say, one of the matirim for davening is that a man is constantly in straits. That the human being is such that he never has peace of mind. He always, even today, we sit here, we buried a student yesterday. I don't have to tell you. Uh, our health is better a week ago. We were ill. Who knows what will be next week. The elections going on today with all the hatred it engendered. So you see, you sit here, but a child shouldn't have these feelings. He should have a perfectly happy, uh, joyful feeling. Now, Rabbi Israel Miller has been a fixture on the Yeshiva University scene since the 1930s. And, uh, you know, we take for granted why you, Rabbi Israel Miller, will always be around. And the truth is, those of us that saw Rabbi Miller uh, where, when he appeared and said a few brief words at the YU Day in, uh, in, in, uh, in for the men... So when you saw Rabbi Miller, you realized he's not always going to be around. He's aged remarkably. He's had bad health lately. But his mind is good. And I was smart enough, I was smart enough to uh, ask my student, Joey Epstein, when Rabbi Miller came to Israel, I'll give you the whole background. When Rabbi Miller came to Israel uh, to visit his son, Reb David, and to spend a few months here, so... Um, He's in a wheelchair. He can barely walk. So uh, Joey asked my permission to give him our manuscript, let him read it. And I said, absolutely, give him the manuscript, let him read it, let, it, let us hear his comments. Now, here's a man who uh, yet studied with Rav Moshe and has speak from Rav Moshe Soloveitchik. So you understand what we have here? We have a man who yet knew Rav Moshe and knows the Rav from the day he became the Rosh Yeshiva in YU, he was at the very first year in May of 1941. So it's very fascinating, uh, the comments he will make on Rav Moshe and the difference in his year, the Rav Shia, you'll understand. It's very fascinating and it's literally putting down a piece of history. The other factor involved is that Rabbi Israel Miller knew the Rav in a way that I never knew him, or Rabbi Lichtenstein never knew him. He knew the Rav from the RCA point of view, from a rabbinical council from the practical rabbinate, from, from the politic of the American scene. And here, too, you will see a very fascinating picture of the Rav. Now, it's the high point of the tape is, in my opinion, where he describes the Rav's visit to the Rav Untamin, the Rav's visit to the Lubavitcher Rebbe, and you'll see there Gedoli Yisrael and how they function. Uh, on a personal level, I'm very humbled by the tape, because if you will notice... There is not one correction he makes in my work on the Rav, in our work on that two tremendous volumes. There's not one correction. And you have to understand that, uh, after all, I didn't know the Rav from 1940, uh, from, from his first year in 1941. I was a little kid in diapers yet. And uh, Baruch Hashem, even 
from this type, you, you will see that there's an acquiescence that our description of the Rav is accurate. He adds certain things. Again, you got to remember, what he, my work is a different work. No one can understand what I'm saying until they see the, the two volumes in front of them. But my work is not a definitive study of the Rav. It only deals with the Rav on one level. The Rav is a human being. And that's what makes Rabbi Miller's remarks so fascinating. And even where we don't have something he mentions, the reasons why we don't have it, because it doesn't fit in to the pattern of what I wanted to do in my two volumes. Now, you have to sit close, because the tape is not that clear. It's recorded in David Miller's home, and the, the kids are running around, his grandchildren are running around. It begins, it's not that audible at first, but it warms up and it gets audible. Now, the first story he tells, I'll just give you a way of introduction. It's a very famous story that's been written up and uh, told and retold. Obviously, I don't, in my book, it has no place. But the Rav, for all that, uh, again, we lived in fear of him. We caught the YU end of the Rav. Uh, I said last night, going up the, after the Shia, so I was talking about BMT, and I made the comment that in BMT I was a king, I ruled. So the boy said this, so some of the fellows in the Kola said, yeah, the boys were afraid of, no, I didn't rule, it was different. We feared the Rav and he ruled, I ruled out of love. If you would know my relationship with the boys in BMT, I ruled, but of course they loved me. It was a different type of relationship. But in Boston and Maimonides, it was mamish love. The love, the Rav loved every kid there. It was a different relationship whatsoever. In other words, that he built my mandis. And I said this, and I said in front of an audience of hundreds of people, including Rabbanim, that in my opinion, if you would ask the Rav his greatest achievement, he would say my mandis. And a Rav came up to me, an elder Rav, a man in his 80s, 90s, and he told me he heard the Rav say in, my, in, in Moria, once in the middle of his Shia, that there's only one reason I'm going to get to heaven is because I built my manri. So Baruch Shekibanti, I know the Rav inside out. In Mo, in my manri, he loved every kid, every kitty kid off the street. So he comes in. He used, every Friday he would go into my manri to check what's going on. Once a week, that would be his his Friday morning into my manri. So um, he comes in and this kid is sitting the whole way crying. He says to the kid, "What's the matter?" The kid says, "We're thrown out of class." I wasn't behaving. A little kid, an eight-year-old, nine-year-old kid, and I have a beginner in Nach. So the Rav says to the kid, come, I'll study with you. So the kid says to the Rav, you know the Nach? No, the kid didn't know who the Rav was. He saw an older, but you know the Rav? So the Rav says, I think so. Okay, let, let the Rav's tape roll and kill uh, my microphone. Pesach, Tashnat, 1999. He was very warm to the children of Maimonides. Um, I mean, he used to go there to every Friday um, go through the classes. And he once found a little boy out in the hall crying. And then he asked the little boy why he was crying. He said the teacher put him out of the class because he misbehaved. And they were reviewing the Chumash. And he won't be able to get a good mark on the test because he won't be there for the review. And the Rub said to him, I'll, I'll go over to Chumash with you. And he didn't know who the Rub was. And he said, you know Chumash? And the Rub said, I think so. And the Rav sat down in a room with him and learned Hummish with him. And 
the children of the rub learned about this story when this young man, when the student had grown and came to visit them and told them that this the rub had taught him Hummish so that he would be able to pass his examination. He had this kind of a relationship even uh, to his students at yeshiva who would not, people would not understand. Infrequently he would call me about a student uh, that needed help or indeed when uh, Dr. Belkin asked me to come back to serve as assistant to the president, which I was originally for student affairs. <clears throat> and uh, I said to Dr. Belkin that I felt that I was too old for the job. I was 50 years old at the time, that he needed somebody younger for student affairs. And Dr. Belkin said to me, I need you. I need somebody with maturity and I want you to come. And I said, I will think about it. And I only asked two people. I asked my wife what she thought. Uh, I had reached my 50th birthday. And as one approaches uh, this uh, sort of milestone in life, you begin to think, what are you going to do with the rest of your life? You know, you've done what you feel you want to do. I've been the president of the rabbinical council already. And uh, my shul, I had built uh, an addition to the shul, a school building, etc. They could get along without me. What was I going to do? And at this point, Dr. Belkin asked me to come back to the issue. It was the time of the troubles in the 60s, late 60s. Uh, so I asked my wife, and my wife said to me, my name is Ruth, whither thou goest, I will go. You want to go to the yeshiva? Fine. But I asked the Rav, and the Rav said to me, Dr. Belkin said he needs you. So what kind of a question are you asking me? Of course you come to the yeshiva. That was his response. And uh, he, when um, fellows who were to become presidents of the RCA would ask me for advice, I would say that we have uh, several uh, areas where you can depend upon uh, having support and one of the people that I would always say get close to the Rav. How can you get close to the Rav? I said you will be surprised. I mean you wrote here about what he said publicly about Rabbi Clavin, but he was also very close personally to uh, all of the presidents of the rabbinical council because we really depended upon him for not merely advice but for support uh, that if he gave support no one would ever ask any question no one would question him remember specific uh, instances that, ha that happened yeah the uh, 
I was particularly involved, for example, when Pope John started with the ecumenical conference in Rome and he wanted uh, to sort of redo history and the Rav uh, was very much uh, afraid of what this would mean in terms of uh, the church uh, becoming very close to uh, the Jews and was his great fear was that the Jews uh, would lose their own dignity and that the church had not changed in terms of its desire uh, for the conversion of Jews to Christianity, certainly to Catholicism. And that is when he made his famous confrontation speech at the yeshiva. But there was also an aspect to this, um, I mean, in which he said, you can work with non-Jews and with the church on social issues. For example, if you want to work with the Catholic priest who is in the, your area about putting a stoplight on a corner which is dangerous, of course you should work with with the uh, non-Jewish clergy on issues of that kind. But when it came to religion, this is too intimate a subject to deal with anybody from any other faith. And I was involved in getting a, a stance from the American Jewish community getting a statement uh, and I learned something and from the Rav at that time that we should make up the statement in advance and then bring that statement that we were then meeting at the President's Conference bring that statement to the President's Conference and it is that statement which they will begin to debate. They will not appoint a committee to write a statement, but it is that statement which they will begin to debate and they will try to make changes in it. And some of the changes we may be able to accept and some not able to accept. And I was representing the rabbinical council at that time and I went with a statement that we had drawn up with the Rav and essentially that was the statement that was adopted by the American Jewish community and uh, no one uh, the you know and I'm speaking about people to the right who would have nothing to do with the Goyim uh, and, and who would say what what do you have to issue any kind of statement for? Why do you have to respond to this? Let the Reform and the Conservative respond to the Pope. The 
the rough felt that there had to be a response on behalf of the total uh, Jewish community and that there were certain aspects of our collective life where we ought to deal with uh, the non-Jewish community. So here is an example of where I was personally involved and whatever changes had to be made, I was on the long distance phone with the Rav and I would nev not accept anything. I said, you can do it without us. I would not accept anything that the Rav would not accept. And uh, uh, we got a statement that was acceptable to us. So let me go back a little bit and tell you about how the Rav met uh, people who wanted to see him. Uh, Rav Unterman uh, wanted, when he was chief rabbi, he wanted to meet with the Rav. And he asked me whether I could arrange an appointment <coughs> with the Rav. And so I went to the Rav and the Rav said, he is the Rav Rashi, I will go to him. I insist upon going to him. So one day after his year, I took the Rav to the hotel where Rav Unterman was staying and the Rav came in and he said to Rav Unterman, we have met before. And Rav Unterman looked at him oddly and the Rav said, I was a little boy when you came to visit Rav Chaim and Haraya Davar, that I was there, I will tell you the piece of Torah that you told Rav Chaim. Uh, when you came to see him. And he said over the Torah, and Rav Unterman was amazed, and then said to him, you said a shir today, what mesechta are you learning at yeshiva? And he said, we are doing yavamas, and he asked what blot, and the Rav told him. And Rav Unterman said a piece of Torah on Teisvis uh, on that block. And the Rav, when I walked out with him, I said, Rebbe, I said, I, I'm amazed by your memory. How could you remember you were five, six, seven years old when uh, the Rav Unterman came to see uh, your grandfather? How could you remember the Torah? So he said, so I have a good memory. He said, but I must tell you that he is a Talmud Chacham. He said he didn't know what Mesechta was learning, and he didn't know what Dafar, where I was. And the piece of Torah that Rav said to me was a fine piece of Torah. I, his modesty, I don't have to tell you about. He, you know, we used to call himself Abalamet. I mean, uh, but. Uh, at one occasion, he said, after all, the Kaddish Parcha was a Malamid, we say in a Malamid to Aleyama Yisrael, the Bracha every morning. So if the Hashem was a Malamid, so I could be a Malamid. But he was a Malamid par excellence. Every kid at the yeshiva wanted to go into his class. Uh, and I had one young man it was uh, one period of time <clears throat> after Mr. Abrams died 
and uh, then we had Rabbi Abraham came. Uh, there was a half year in which I served. Dr. Belkin asked me to serve as uh, sort of the administrator of the yeshiva. And then when Rabbi Abraham left before Rav Kalaf came, I was another half year. Who was a young youngster who wanted to go into the Rav Shear, and I said, you have to go through other shiurim until you reach that madriga. He said, but I sat in on the Rav Shear, and I understood it. I said, this is the greatness of the Rav. I said, any student at the yeshiva could really understand his shiur, but to appreciate his shiur, you have to be at a certain level. And when you get to that level, you will go into the Rav Shear, because what we could have had was everybody in the yeshiva sitting in on the Rav Shear. So that was the meeting with Rav Winterman. I also took the Rav to see Menachem Begin. When Menachem Begin became prime minister, he asked me, whether I could arrange an appointment with him for the Rav. He was ready to go up to Boston to see the Rav. And again, the, bo- the Rav said to me that he would come to New York, especially to see Menachem Begin. He flew in on a Sunday afternoon on the shuttle. I met him at LaGuardia Airport. He came with Rav Yitzchak Tversky, his son-in-law. And I drove them to the Waldorf Astoria Towers. Uh, Begin, they had given in the Waldorf Towers a whole floor where uh, he was prime minister, where he had all his mishorsim. Anyhow, when I came into the room uh, where Begin was, it was a long table, and Begin sat, uh, in the middle and the rub at the end and I was opposite uh, uh, Begin one of the pictures that I cherish is a picture of the three of us there and uh, the, first there were the photographers there from the newspapers and then they cleared out the room and just the rub and uh, Begin and I and Yitzchak Tversky was sitting there as well and uh, I thought that they were going to speak politics, but they started by reminiscing about Brisk. Um, Begin had come from Brest-Litovsk from Brisk, and uh, they reminisced about the fact that Reb was anti-Zionist, and Begin's father, who was a gabai in the shul, was a farbrenter. He was a very ardent Zionist. So when Reb Chaim was not in shul, and he would call people to the Torah and make a mishaberach, the money was for the Karen Kayemes. When Reb Chaim was there, he couldn't do that. The Jewish National Fund was not acceptable to Reb Chaim. And they laughed about their memories of their youth. And then Begin asked him a question uh, which 
regretfully got into the newspapers in a uh, not nothing proper form. Begin asked him. Uh, he said that he was a little disturbed about the fact that there were uh, so many days of mourning that came close to each other, uh, Yom HaShoah and then the Yom HaZikaron, which is the era of uh, Yom HaAtzma'ut, and then Tisha B'Av, whether or not it might be possible since the Yom HaShoah has a date that was set by the Knesset uh, on, in terms of the uprising in the Warsaw Ghetto, but it was not possible to combine two of them and so that there would not be uh, as many uh, uh, days that followed one after the other. Begin was afraid that in terms of history, as uh, uh, the Lei HaShoah would die out, that the Shoah would not assume the significance that it does in our day, and that people would just be going through some kind of motion, but it would not be meaningful, and he wanted to keep it meaningful. The Rav uh, responded to him that this is not the kind of question that you ask a Rav in Chutz He said, you have Rabbanim in Israel, and they should ask him for you about an internal uh, question which was a very clever way of getting at. He said to him, I want you to know that uh, Tisha B'Av is not merely for the Korban of the two Batei Mikdash, but we also have Kinot that deal with the Crusades, etc. And so there were combinations of dates. Of course, when this hit the newspaper, uh, the Holocaust survivors in Tzulei Shoah also hit the place high decibel in terms of complaints against Begin. How come he would think in terms of changing the date of the Yom HaShoah, that the Yom HaShoah was sui generis, that this was a... But this was their conversation, and uh, they established a relationship which was a very warm and human relationship. It was not the relationship of a great Tamit Chacham, of the genius of the Rav, and a great statesman. I mean, to my mind, Begin was a great statesman as well. I also took the Rav the first time that he personally encountered the Lubavitcher Rebbe after they had known each other in Berlin before the Rebbe went off to the Sorbonne to study in France. They had spoken on the telephone on occasion but had never seen each other in person. When the Rebbe lost his mother, <coughs> Uh, I said to the Rav, 
Rebbe, if you would like to go to be Menachem Avil, I will call Gorarie, who was then the secretary to the Lubavitcher Rebbe, and I will find when is a good time for you to come to uh, visit. And uh, you would uh, be Menachem Avil, the Rebbe. Uh, and he said, yes, it would be proper. And I called and arranged for an afternoon when I drove him to Eastern Parkway. Uh, and uh, when we came in, I came in with the Rav. There were a lot of people in the room. They emptied out the room. The only one who stayed was uh, Elbert, the editor of uh, Pardes, who stayed in the room. Uh, uh, and uh, the Rav and uh, the Rebbe had a conversation which was of great interest. Uh, the Rebbe's mother had died uh, on the late Shabbos afternoon and the whole question uh, which they talked to each other about was when Aninus uh, began whether uh, it began before Mariv or after Mariv, whether the Rebbe should have Davin Mariv, etc. And the Rebbe and the Rebbe were throwing rambams at each other. And uh, then, after about 15 or 20 minutes, the Rebbe arose and said, "I'm not going to miss him." There were no personal comments other than comments about the Rebbe's mother in relationship to when she had passed away. And that was the first time that the uh, Rebbe uh, encountered the Rebbe. He went to several for bringing afterwards, but that it was not a one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, anybody who had been at a Fabring know that there were literally hundreds, maybe thousands of people who were present, and all you could do uh, was kind of nod to the Rebbe as he looked around the room, because that he did uh, with his piercing eyes, uh, looked around the room and uh, would lift his glass with a high material. Uh, but uh, that was an experience too of how Tachachamim are Menachem Ovel, or how Tamidah Chachamim meet their counterparts, or how they would uh, meet a prime minister, a statesman. Everybody wanted to see the Rav. The heads of the Sochnut when they used to come, uh, Louis Pincus, I took to see the Rav. I took him to the Rebbe's apartment in the dormitory at Yeshiva. Aryeh Dolchin I took, but I remember in the conversation of Pincus, there was a big controversy in Israel at the time about television. If you recall, Ben-Gurion did not want television to be introduced into Israel at all. And finally, they introduced television because they said 
what good is it if we don't have television and there's television in Jordan and the people can tune in to television in Jordan. It isn't something that you can stop at the border. And uh, the finally uh, permitted television here in Israel, but there was a question with television on Shabbat. Uh, and Pincus uh, Esther of what he felt because the Mizrahi, the Maftal, was very much opposed to television on Shabbat. And Pincus said to the Rav that the young people that hang out on corners, street corners on Friday night, they said they're not from, and he said, and they become like gangs. They said if they had television, they would stay home and they would watch television. And I recall the Rub's response to him and said, the Rub said to him, I would not counsel the Mafdal to leave the cabinet, uh, to leave the government on this issue, on the issue of television. I would rather counsel them to exchange television for the portfolio of education. He said, education is what is important for that generation that you are talking about. It is not television one way or the other that is going to make the difference. It is chinuch that is going to make the difference. Pincus was amazed because these guys who were accustomed to uh, people making a, uh, a big deal out of uh, a what to the Rav was not of vital importance. He was amazed at what was of vital importance to the Rav, which was Pinoch and uh, the Pinoch of the next generation here in Israel, which very much concerned the Rav. And so these are some of the reminiscences that I have about him, uh, some of the stories um, there, I miss him more than uh, I, I can put into words, and we miss him at Yeshiva, we miss him in the RCA, and we miss him just as a, a person. I would come to him with Shilas from Yeshiva, the girls at Stern College uh, wanted to uh, have a musical play and there was a whole question of Kolbe Isha and I went to the Rav and asked him about it and he told me the story which you have in here in the book about uh, it told it in a little different form um, um, with uh, the Rav Chaim coming uh, to ask for uh, support for the yeshiva from a wealthy balabas 
whose mate was singing in the kitchen, and uh, Rav Chaim saying to him, "Was hot yet so here? What what do you have against the the maid if she is entertaining herself by singing? Is it just close the window so that we should not hear? She may sing. It's a question of our listening." And the Rav said to me about the girls in Stern College. He said, the question is not about their singing. The question is about who is going to be in the audience. I had questions of this kind that I would take to him. Uh, because when I said that no one would question his uh, decision, this, this was true. Uh, no one questioned uh, the fact that the Rav considered uh, a secular education as important in our day and that we had to bear a dual burden of going to college and of learning and that uh, it was no excuse to say that I am uh, going to spend all of my time in learning and I'm not going to have any of the other knowledge uh, which the Kaddish Baruch Hu has placed here in this world. The fact that he uh, sent his own children uh, to the best uh, schools uh, and the fact that he was uh, I mean Chad Bedoro I mean I those of us who, who knew him, who listened to him, who learned from him. Uh, I mean, we had Rashi Yeshiva, but uh, no one like unto him uh, realized uh, that we had to bear that dual burden, the Machanayim, the two Machanot that he spoke about, and uh, that uh, we had to aspire to that and that it was a lachatchila rather than a bediyevet and it was not merely a matter of making a living. People are going through now a sort of a revisionism about the Rav and everybody is trying to put him into their mold. But when I said that he was sui generis, he had his own mold. I mean, there were, and in, in the book, you have some of the stances that he took that would be considered extreme now, and yet we all took it from him. Originally, there was a tshuva from the halacha committee of the RCA about the microphone, its use in the shul on Shabbos. And I still remember the tshuva, the, the, the head of the halacha committee before the Rav was a Rabbi Simcha Levi from Perth Amboy, New Jersey. And uh, there was a hatter given for the use of the microphone. The Rav came along and he said, you can't use a microphone on Shabbat. Um, there was no question after that. There was just no question after that. The Rav said no, the Rav said no. And he, 
I mean, somebody was just here speaking to me about Rev. Shlomo Zalman studying electricity and that he, before anybody, the Rev. knew physics. He knew electricity. He spoke to us about fluorescent light, about cold light, and about uh, heat, and about light. He knew. I mean, he analyzed. And it was not a question of his not understanding the whole modern world, but he took certain stance, like not to go into a shul uh, for to listen to Tachias if it had mixed pews. And there was no question in anybody's mind after that about the importance of having a shul that met all of the standards because there was... And there were times when he would say to a rabbi, you go to that shul, and I know the people, I know the Balabatim. After you were there for some time, you will effect a change in that shul. You will make the shul an orthodox shul. I, I, this, this happened to me. Uh, and, and I made the change and changed the shul so that it was 100% halachic uh, because there was a time when in, in the United States where there was a, an erbuvia where there was and, and this, this whole mix-up where we didn't know where to go and the Rav held the line on certain things and because he held the line it was held but if he for example said I can only organize a school in Boston if I have young boys and young girls that are studying in the same class and you can make whatever resolutions that you want. Maybe in my hometown, in Baltimore, we could have a boys' school and we could have a Basiakov school. But originally in Boston, when he organized Maimonides, in order for him to get enough kids and enough parents that would want to send each other, he had to have it this way. People accepted it. They accepted this is what the Rose said that here he would make a compromise and here he would not. And uh, as I say, I miss him. Okay. Can, you, can you remember any other stories regarding um, uh, other questions that were brought to the Rav that he gave uh, specific advice on? Other instances, other stories that you were involved in? Yeah. Uh, one of them I, I don't want you to... Uh, to publish, but I'll, I'll tell you uh, of an incident that happened uh, with me, but this is not for publication, because I, I think that uh, it, it would be taken askance. We have a medical college, and we have all kinds of problems that come up. There are anatomy classes where they cut up cadavers <clears throat> and there had to be 
decisions uh, that were made uh, about where you get your cadavers from uh, and uh, to make sure that there are not uh, Jewish bodies that you're cutting up. That's why I don't want yeah. this to, uh, uh, to be published. And uh, so we used to get them a from the morgue uh, because if there were such things as Jews there's a Hebrew Free Burial Society in New York that used to bury Jews that were you know that uh, died in, on the Bowery and uh, uh, one of the things that we had to do in the medical college uh, were to we had had, they had to purchase bodies from uh, cities, let's say, like Syracuse or Buffalo. Um, on one of the bodies, they had uh, forgotten to take off the name tag. And there were some yeshiva kids who were working on this body, and the name tag was Greenberg. And they went to the instructor, and they said, we can't work on this body, he's a Jew. The instructor happened to be a goy, but he's a sensitive goy. So he went to the dean, and uh, they took the body off and put another one there. The dean called, and uh, you know, it ended up with me. And I... Uh, had uh, went to the Riverside Chapel, and uh, to the Hebrew free burial, etc. In any case, we buried the guy. I tried to find out where he came from, etc. It, it would take too long. Uh, I had to bury. And uh, later, I found out that this is a body that they bought in Buffalo. And I called the rabbis in Buffalo. I said, "How come you didn't bury him?" Greenberg. I said, "He's not Jewish." You know, it, it could be a guy that had a non-Jewish mother and that was not Jewish. Meanwhile, he's buried in a Jewish cemetery. But I went to the Rav. And I said to him, Rebbe, maybe in our medical college, now that there are computers, and uh, it was the early days of the computers, you can build a body with all of its organisms and you can study anatomy uh, without having a cadaver, without having a human body. And the rub smiled at me. Rabbi Miller. He looked at me and he said, Rabbi Miller, he said, would you like a doctor to operate upon you who has never looked into a human body? <laughs> that was his response to me. And that's why I don't, you know, first I don't want about the medical college with the Goyim and the this and that, you know, there's certain aspects. I don't mind about the ecumenical uh, council with, with the Pope with, uh, because he went public uh, with that. I mean, this, uh, he did it 
in a very fine fashion. I mean, he was quite friendly with the cardinal in in Boston, Cardinal Cushing. He was quite friendly with him. They used to discuss uh, theology, but on a very high plane because uh, the cardinal had also read a great deal. The rub was very well read. Um, I mean, people who don't know, I mean, think all that he, you know, that he spent all of his time uh, with the, the Gemara and the Rambam. But he was very well read in uh, Kierkegaard, for example. I mean, he gave lectures uh, in Notre Dame, and uh, you know, we we had a whole series of lectures that were given from the yeshiva uh, for Jews in Goyim. I mean, he knew Karl Barth and, and all of these guys that I only know by name. I mean, I, you know, I, try, I try to go through Kierkegaard, you know, and the Rub knew. He knew philosophy. And, you know, Hermann Cohen, of course, he knew from his studies in Germany to Kant. But, but he knew. He knew. Uh, and he didn't forget, you know, who... Uh, this kind of zikaron. I mean, so so so. so I had a good memory. What? Can you remember? You mentioned before about a special relationship with his father, the Kibbutz of Aim. Yeah. Can you remember anything specific? Yeah. 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 His father died late on a Friday afternoon, and we had the levaya on Sunday at the yeshiva, and he was still in Boston at that time, the Rav. None of us knew him uh, very well. Uh, he had delivered, I was at the first year that he gave at the yeshiva in the base of Medrash. Uh, the, the base Medrash, in the shul, he gave uh, the, uh, the, his first year. But none of us knew him. But we knew Reb Maisha. I mean, Reb Maisha was our Rebbe. Uh, we sat in his class and listened to his shiurim. And he lived, Reb Maisha lived in Washington Heights on Fort Washington Avenue, uh, near where the George Washington Bridge is. And, uh, and the Rebbe's sisters still lived at home. The Rebbe came before Shabbos and we made up the guys who were in the dormitory that we would have sort of a mishmar and that every two hours we would change to say Tillam and we would be there all night and all day Shabbos and all Saturday night to uh, uh, to Lorovaya. He passed away in his house. They they and kept him in his house until they brought him over to the yeshiva. When Dr. Revel, as Hanlaracha passed away, they kept him in the yeshiva overnight, and they had to get all the guys out of the dormitory because we were all in what we used to call Reitz Hall, what's called Mus Hall now, which is connected. The building, the dormitory, connected. 
we had to get all the Kayanim out. Uh, anyhow, Ramesha was kept in, in his house. And in our room, in the house. And we sat there saying to him, the rough sat with us and cried all night. I didn't, I did not even change my mishmar. I sat there because I, I was mesmerized. I never heard such crying and such tears and such wails. He cried all night long. He stayed up two nights. I couldn't take it already. After Friday night, I I, I left. But he, he cried. He felt the loss. I mean, uh, he expressed it, you know, in his yurtside shears that he used to give. But it was more even than the yurtside shear. He moved his mother across the street from the yeshiva when you would remember already where she lived across the street from the yeshiva with his brother Shmuel who taught chemistry at, at yeshiva but he would visit his mother every day that he was in New York he had such derecheres for her he had with his father interestingly he had a Used to be where they used to keep the Tanya, like uh, the kids keep their comic books inside of uh, the Gemaras. Uh, yeah, that they, they he had to hide it from them. He had to hide it from his father too. But he he knew Tanya. I mean, uh, the rubs approach to I mean to Hasidus was totally different uh, than the Vilner Goyen. I mean, after all, this is the, 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 the Shalshelis. And yet his approach to Hasidis, I will never forget my own experience just watching. I was at the wedding of Atara with Yitzchak Tversky and the Rav and the Rebbe together. I mean, that his approach to Hasidus was totally different. And I think it stemmed from his days with his Rebbe, the Lubavitcher, and his youth, that his approach was totally different than the Litvakis. And it was his father's approach as well. I mean his great love I mean you have that in here for Eretz Yisrael I mean he had great love and yet he did not come 
He still sold enough for publication. One of the reasons he didn't come was because he did not want to embarrass his uncle and his cousins. He felt that he would have to relate to them and they would be embarrassed in relating to him, not him to them. And yet, and yet, he collected money for the Briskri Yeshiva here. I mean, I used to give him, all of us, all of the rabbis, uh, used to give to the rub for the Briskri Yeshiva. When I came here in 1949, I went to visit the Bevel Brisker, and I went to visit all of the Ketelim. I mean, I went to visit the Chazanish, and Yav Chalap was still alive, and the Nazir, and the Three Pesach Frank, and Reminder. I, I was Chutzpinik. Uh, I went to visit all of them. The only, and Rabbi Sir Zalman Meltzer. Rabbi Sir Zalman sat with me for over an hour, and we talked about my Rebbe Rafaleev, who used to learn with him. Uh, who was in his yeshiva when he was in Europe and about uh, Rabbi and Kotler and uh, then Rabbi Susan was Malava to the door I mean this just was the greatness of the man Ravel Brisker sat this way I brought him I, I, after all I had learned with his brother with Ramesha and I brought the uh, was in 49 and I uh, I told him you know that I was a Talmud he sat like this with his finger tapping the table and he said yes and kikumen zen de medina so I said if in kikumen zen yerushalayim that's a good answer but that was our whole conversation and I walked out, and then I gave money to the rug for a brisk. He said, after your reception, you're still giving money. <laughs> he always smiled at me. I said, of course, Rebbe. <clears throat> but Ramesha, after all, he went to Warsaw uh, to be in a rabbinical school, which uh, was not also uh, recognized, uh, you know, she was Hanan in the old days. I mean, we had, I mean, Shemesh Kap said to the Shear and, and the Yeshiva, so Rav Meisha came as uh, a, uh, a Rosh Yeshiva. It was not Yeshiva University at the time. We just had Yeshiva College. It was a college. When it became a university, it became a big problem to the Yeshivas here. And one, uh, I mean, this is not for uh, this as well. I mean, I, if I am responsible for anything which I consider an achievement in terms of yeshiva, it is in bringing yeshiva here, in, in building the group center, and in bringing the kids for a year of study here where they will get credit, etc. I mean, when I see, uh, as I did on the, uh, they, they had the day of Yomi Yun in memory of the Rav, where I spoke, at, uh, I saw 500 boys sitting in front of me. I said to my daughter, I said, Zechalti Mikola Mali. And all, everything I did at Yeshiva, this, this is important. And Bruce built 
this uh, building for the route. I mean, there was one uh, little building, separate building for a residence um, that uh, they, they put in, uh, uh, the, the kids call him Rabbi Benny, with all his children into that building, but that building was built for the rub. Bruce wanted the rub to come here, and the rub never said no to him. He never said he would not come, but he never said he would come. But I, I wanted, I said, Rebbe, I will escort you. I will be your guardian. I will be your shomer about who gets in to see you, who doesn't get in to see you. I wanted to take him also for a vacation. He couldn't go for a vacation anyplace. They, you know, got them tourists They used to, I said, I'll take you to Switzerland. I said, where the Rabbanim, I said, from Europe go to get away from everybody like they used to go to, to the spas. I said, I'll, I'll take you to Switzerland. Uh, the Rebison would have gone, but the, the, the Rob would not. Uh, he went uh, to, uh, to Cape Cod. Uh, that, that, that was where he had his little house. Uh, people did not bother him. No. You mentioned before, you didn't take that, that uh, when his wife was sick that he used to go to uh, yeah. Boston. So he elaborated on that. It was not merely when his wife was sick after she died. He went out every Friday to the Bay Island. So he spent at least a half hour there at her grave. He had uh, not merely great respect for her, but great love for her, and yet never displayed it publicly his display was just in his presence he stayed in the hospital they wouldn't let him in her room anymore he sat outside of her room and the rabbis from New York many of us used to fly up to spend the day just sitting with him to relieve the family a little bit but I'll just tell you one other little anecdote. There's a book written by Chaim Grada. Uh, in English, it's called the Yeshiva. In Yiddish, it was called Semach Atlas. Uh, and it was translated, Chaim Grada wrote in Yiddish. It was translated into Hebrew and into English. I read it in English. The Rav read it in Hebrew. The Rebison read it in Yiddish. And the three of us discussed it together because the Rav said it was very authentic. It was the Chazonish that the Chaim Grada was writing about. And he said the picture that he painted of the yeshivas was very, as I said to him, Rebbe, I said, you never learned in the yeshiva. How would you know what the yeshiva was like? So he said, I knew the yeshiva. He said, I, I, knew, I knew the yeshiva world, which he did, of course. Yeah. Uh, can you remember any other stories regarding with his uh, father? Anything else that you remember those days? Well, um, the only... I mean, we used to hear from his father 
you know, his father, uh, you, you have the letter that his father wrote when he was uh, here uh, as the candidate for uh, Tel Aviv, uh, Rav Rashi. And so you know what his father thought of him, but his father used to talk constantly about him, uh, about uh, what a great Tamachachim he was. And uh, I mean, again, this is not for publication, but he was a much better Rebbe than his father. I mean, his father was a great Tamachachim, etc. I was a great Rosh Yeshiva, but I mean, uh, there was a difference, let's say, in listening to David Lipschitz's shiurim or listening to the Rav shiurim, and there was a difference in listening to Akira and the Rambam as the Rav would in, interpret it and as he would chew it up and give it out to you and then repeat it and and do it and simplify it for you so that you could conceptualize it. Uh, I mean the rope again was sui generis. Uh, the, the kids who did not have this experience, I mean they're learning, you know, it's eight me p eight. So they're learning the Torah of the Rav, but the personality of the Rav, uh, one had to to experience, uh, one had to just be with him. Do you remember the other stories with any other personalities? Is it that you were involved with the Rav? You mentioned Runtelman, you mentioned Pinkas. I'm trying in terms of the others, there were always other people that were involved and when there were when when there was more than one additional person in the in the room, the rope was a different person. Uh, his public personality uh, Although many of the stories that you tell, he told publicly, but his public personality was different. Uh, the only time that he really showed himself was when he, in the course of his rushes, he used to say, you look in there, you know, you want to hear more. And he knew what our answer would be, but he always wanted us to. I think one of the things that one ought to stress, well, firstly, I mean, to me, the rub is a Torah personality, that this is more important than all of these mices, that he represented the Isha Halacha. He represented the Torah and this was what he essentially was everything else you know philosophy 
his even his humanity um, this was secondary uh, to uh, the fact that he was to my mind when certainly the outstanding terror personality that I ever met I mean I as you well know was very friendly with Dr. Belkin and I was very friendly friendly I mean I, I can't say I was friendly with Dr. Revel but uh, he was my Rebbe too but uh, in terms of the total Torah personality I mean each of them also had a PhD etc the Rav was uh, head and shoulders above anybody else and yet I am pleased that he never became the president of Yeshiva University you know one time they were pushing him that he uh, all question of whether would be Dr. Belkin or Dr. Young and then people threw in the name of Rapsalovichi he would not have been a good president of the university this was not his forte he was good at what he was he was a Muhammad but the Muhammad like the Kurdish word Do you remember any connection they had with Moshe Feinstein, with his cousin? It was... Uh, I was at a dinner once where they were both present and... They didn't see each other often. They spoke to each other very, very frequently. And Rabbi Lovovitz, who succeeded me as the president of the USCA, was a nephew of, of Rabbi Moshe Feinstein and he dealt uh, I mean they discussed many of the shaitas that are in you know the Igeris uh, that were discussed with the Rabbi as well but I of my own knowledge I, I can say we have in the book uh, Rob answering regarding the issue with communism, you know, the McCarthy area. Era. Do you do you remember anything back from then with the Rob? Well, he was very much anti-communist. I mean, this, but he was afraid of Russia. He was afraid of the Russian bear. I mean, the fact that all of us discovered rather late that the Russian bear had no teeth uh, that they had the Sputnik and that they had the but he, the Rov's experience with Russia was such that it colored his whole attitude toward the Middle East and it colored, you know, his uh, whole attitude towards communism. Of course, he, he uh, but I don't recall the uh, McCarthy area particularly.
Do you have any recollections regarding the Rav's experiences in, in, in Boston regarding the Kashrut uh, controversy in the 30s? I, I was a kid in the yeshiva then, and we had a Chagiga in which uh, we put on a play about, uh, you know, we called uh, the lawyer, the Piatabas, the mouthpiece for the rings because they had the the plumbers but I I must say that when I was a kid in the yeshiva that the kashris business did not interest me particularly I knew that he had his reputation was not particularly good I would just say to you it was all wrong because they were many of the Rabbanim were painting him as the villain whereas he was trying to bring some order out of the chaos that was cautious but you do have in the book about uh, you know uh, the uh, statement of uh, this investigating committee and you also have where he said that the yeshiva rescued him mm-hmm. and, but he repeated that many many times mm-hmm. he was a great chassid of the yeshiva uh, I mean yeshiva university meant a great deal to him not merely for what it had done for him personally but for what he felt it had done for American Jewry he felt really that this was the mother of yeshivas in the United States and uh, I just wonder frequently to myself how he would approach the uh, Jewish world today which is much different than the world that he knew when he came to Boston and then that he knew when he came to YU it's a different world mm, yeah do you remember anything when the Rav uh, I don't know let's call it changed over from uh, an Aguda type of philosophy in the to I never knew him in his Aguda years but I did know him as a great chassid of Chinuch Hatzmoy he was a believer in Chino Chatzmai he felt as I told you that Chino Mamlachti Dati was not doing the proper job Uh, but he felt that there had to be a Chino Chatzmai in addition and he used to urge us to be supportive of Kino Hatsumari. And uh, again, there's revisionism, people either making out to be an Agudini or Black Hat, or he was sui generis in certain aspects, very, very strict in others, as in going to college. It was liberal. Mm-hmm.
you remember any other halakha questions that were brought to his attention that you were, you know, special or unusual or specific questions? Nothing unusual. Uh, um, the, the questions, uh, no, there were questions that we had uh, that we used to turn to him about in terms of Mamzerus, there were kids in the yeshiva who learned for the first time that their mothers had remarried without a get. And I used to refer all of these questions to the Rav, and he would move heaven and earth to get solutions to these problems. And he used to speak about his grandfather, Chaim, that people used to leave babies on his doorstep and that he used to take care of them. So he said, these are my babies that I have to take care of. And, and since I felt that these cases ought to be um, sort of anonymous uh, that even I did not want to know about them uh, I I uh, never investigated beyond turning them over to uh, but there were questions You know, the rabbis used to ask him. Uh, and frequently, they would turn to me or to Rabbi Klavan and ask us to ask the question. Uh, nothing unusual questions that the rabbis had within their congregations, parking lots, and things of this sort. He was very strict in terms of Space well, we have like in the book the, the question about the uh, the, the uh, chaplain who wanted to shave his beard in the Yomtiv Shani. <laughs> that question. I'll just tell you one more story that you can put in, uh, and then I'm going to go have lunch because I'm going to my daughter's for the last days. I'm not going to be here. <clears throat> um, I was the chairman of the President's Conference and I had an appointment with the President of the United States and I was in Shloshim for my mother and I wasn't shaving during the Shloshim and I went to the roof and I said to him, Shokhanor says that if you're going to see a melech, that you should take a haircut, you should shave. I said, I'm going to see the president. I don't know whether he falls into that category. And I can explain to the president uh, that I am not unshaven because this is a Jewish tradition and I'm in mourning for my mother. And the Rav said to me, the Shulchan Aruch says that you should shave. 
you shave. He insisted that I uh, shave off my beard. At the end of the shloshim, I was, I think, around the 28th day. But I did it. Uh, I was going to put on a big sign that I had to go to see the president. And the rev said to me that I had to shave. But on that, he was makpid that I show proper respect for the president. <clears throat> okay, I'm going to end with that story. You can kill it, Jack. Give me life. I'm sorry, I, as far as commenting on the tape, it would take me an hour and a half, but I just want to say on a personal level, it humbles me, because here is a person that knew the Rav from his very first year in the yeshiva, and if you see his description of the Rav, it's exactly the description I've been privileged to impart to my students over the last uh, uh, 20-some-odd years that I've been giving my various lectures on the Rav. Um, I think the key point is where he discusses the Rav, that the Rav just simply took it as a given that in the Western world we have to live within two worlds, the Shtei Machanat, or the two heads that the Rav spoke about, or the Haramadayim Tzofim that I a few years ago reconstructed that amazing lecture of the Rav that I understand they're preparing for publication today because it's considered one of the prime statements of the Rav's Hashkafa. What's fascinating as well is his description of the Rav vis-a-vis uh, Rabbi Dr. Bernard Reveler vis-a-vis Rabbi Dr. Uh, uh, Samuel Belkin. And there's no question, anyone who knew the Rav, that we related to the Rav. The Rav's basic gestalt was that of the Rosh Yeshiva. I mean, there was no two ways about it. Everything else was an addition, but the man's basic gestalt was that of the Rosh Yeshiva. Uh, that he towered over everyone else goes without saying. Um, uh, we speak in terms of Rabbi Belkin or, Ra- or Rabbi Revel from the point of view of, of the overall Rabbi Doctor and the Torah Jew in the modern world. What's fascinating is that even over Reb Moshe and others, the comparison with Rabbi Lipschitz, there's no question the Rav is a Magitshi. In other words, no one says the Rav knew more than his father. That's not the question here. Uh, it doesn't matter who knew more. They were both giants. But as a Magitshia, the Rav was in a class unto himself. And uh, that story with the kid who comes to Rabbi uh, Miller and says, I sat in the Rav Shia and I understood him. Uh, and Rabbi Miller's retort, that, that catches literally the Rav as the great Malamed at that moment in time. That was the Rav's greatness, that everyone could understand him. Uh, he had that ability, uh, such a koach of Hezbe, and such a koach of delivery, that everyone, if you applied yourself, you were able to understand him. Now, with, with all the stories that were told, see what's amazing is when Rabbi Miller tells these stories, he says, you know, keep it a secret. Of course, we're not publishing any of this because our volumes are entirely only what the Rub said, not what, not what I say or not what Rabbi Miller says about the Rub. It's word by word the Rub. That's what makes my work so valuable. That's why Professor Elman called it a primary source. He says, this is unbelievable what you have here. Two, uh, more than two-thirds of the two volumes. In other words, only the first part of volume one is Rakefet uh, doing a monograph on the Rub's life. But outside of that, it's all primary sources, basically. Um, but all these stories that Rabbi Miller says, we knew about it. It all leaked out. Now, the medical school story is classic. 
And that's exactly the rub. Now, I, and there, I'll, I just want to end off the class and give you a drop of background, which you're not aware of. This problem of cadavers became very acute. First of all, it became acute in Eretz Yisrael. Israel uh, has a medical school before, uh, before Einstein. And somehow, over the years, over the years, more and more uh, religious boys are going to medical school. And of course, cutting up a cadaver becomes a tremendous problem of uh, Nivel Hamait. I don't have to tell you the serum involved. And already in Eretz Yisrael, if you check back, Poli Agudah, Ragudah, Mizrahi, the early years, proposals were already made for uh, artificial bodies. And that's exactly uh, what happens in Einstein. And the Rebbe's attitude, and I think it's a very real attitude, he says, uh, would you want uh, someone to operate on you, a doctor, who never operated on a real body before, just experimented on artificially constructed bodies. But I can tell you that that proposal was made very seriously in Eretz Yisrael. It was made by Rav Kalman Kahana, who, uh, there was once a Polya Gouda here. Polya Gouda doesn't exist today. It's hard for me to explain to you. Polya Gouda, many, I have a feeling someone like Rav David Miller would, would, would find his home in Polya Gouda. It, it represented a cross between the Mizrahi and the Aguda. See, in those years, the Mizrahi people were not some adagdeik in everything like we are today. In those years, they used to say the difference between Aguda and Mizrahi is that in Aguda the women cover their hair, Mizrahi they don't. See, today that doesn't exist anymore. Today everyone covers their hair, and the difference is more in Hashkafa. In those years, there was a certain unity, Mizrahi and Aguda, they grew up on the same bench. That's why in 1949, the first election, they ran together. They ran a joint block. So the difference was not as pronounced today as today. The education system, anyone who was a Mizrachist or an Agudist, but they grew up in the same yeshiva, the same Hasidish Shtibble. Today, that's not true. Now, Poli Aguda was the combination. More... Um, is more Zionist than Aguda and more Medakdeik, let's say, in women covering their hair and men having beards than Mizrahi. And in the Poli Aguda element, there was Rav Kalmakan, he was a Yeki, he was a Talmud of the Chazonish. You may recognize him through his writings, his firm, he was a great Gon in Hilchat Tatluyat Baretz. And he was the one who was involved with all this. It was a very serious attempt to come up with a, and it seems like, if I'm not mistaken, in one of the Scandinavian countries, they developed the prototype of a plastic body, a model body, like a model kit, like you put together a, uh, uh, one of my grandsons, he, every, every time he gets a good Martin Gamari, I have to buy him another model, and he made friends here with, with one of the toy stores, I walk in with him Friday, he and the, the guy, the guy selling looks like a Hasidic Jew with a beard, and you know, Gushamunim Jew, I should say, and my my little grandson of all of fourteen, he gives him a discount. He orders models for him, so he puts together models with, within minutes: tanks, guns, planes, missiles, half tracks. Like face first he's explaining to me this power, that shooting power. So they came up. You put a model of a body together, but ultimately it didn't catch on for the rub's reason that when all is said and done, Rebani Shalalim, do you want doctors who didn't handle real bodies? Now, and that leaves us with a terrible problem, and that's the problem that has been discussed and rediscussed. It all goes back to Jerry Blitzstein who said, hey, didn't have mana. 
when it came to the whole lineage of a doctor on Shabbos with the guy, you know, when they had that, uh, when, when the Tommy Lapid of the 90, early 60s, uh, you know, we haven't lacked here for Sunni Israel. Today it's Tommy Lapid, in the early 60s it was someone else, this one, that one. So I think it was, doc, I think it was Sachak, and he's still alive. What's the difference? The hatred for Yiddish kind was overwhelming. So he came up with a story that was picked up already in the New York Times that a tourist fainted on Shabbos and Meir Sharim. And they refuse to let them call for an ambulance because a guy, a guy can die in Shabbos. You're not allowed to help a guy, only a Jew. Because Shabbos is only a Jew, not a guy. So it turned out that it was a blood libel that it... And all the Rabbonim in the world said that it's not Shayach because... The famous Jew of the Chatam Sofa that you can be Machal Shabbos for a guy as well as a Jew today. Now that Shuva is based upon Mipnei Daka Shalom, Mipnei Chil Hashem, that's a small world, but it's not based upon, in other words, the Shuva cannot say, because the sources do not say, that a Jew and a, and, and a Gentile have exactly the same uh, Neshama, the same sanctity of life, and you should be Machal Shabbos. Now the halacha says that for a Jew who's chayiv to be shomer Shabbos, there's kol Shabbos. It's docha, but not for a guy. However, we do it for a guy, mitamim achirim. So that's where Jerry Blitzstein, and this has been recorded in, uh, in, in, I mean, Jerry Blitzstein, let me use, Professor Rabbi Dr. Yaakov Blitzstein, who was my classmate, Jerry was a solid individual. I can't believe he would say anything that the Rev didn't say. So that conversation is recorded and it's re-recorded and replayed. And you know, I'm saying in scholarship and in all of Adar and, and, and the modern Orthodox element that he asked the Rev, Rebbe, are you happy with the fact that your matir and the Khatam Sofer's matir, that we do everything for a guy like a Jew, but it's it's because of extraneous reasons, not because of Pikuach Nefesh Tochen Shabbos. And the Rev evidently answered, no, I'm not happy. So that leaves us with the problem here that Rabbi Miller is referring to. That imagine if the word leaked out that in Einstein they use only Goyish bodies, but Jewish bodies we don't touch. So the problem hangs over. I don't know, today we have already Baruch Hashem, I would say thousands if not tens of thousands of from doctors, not only in America. In America you, you go into hospitals, I mean in, in, in Columbia Presbyterian they have two minchas daily and each mincha has maybe 30, 40 doctors davening there. And I take a look, half of them are my students, some wear kippot in the hospital, some don't wear kippot when they all come to Mincha, put on kippot, obviously, uh, but some wear kippot in the hospital. Some of my students from B, from later years in BMT wear kippot. So I, and in Israel, I don't have to tell you, you go into Hadassah, you think you're in a base medrash, let alone uh, Shari Tzedek, uh, all the doctors, all the specialists, I'm told if you go into Weizmann Research, that the, all the people winning the prizes, you saw Pras Yisrael, where you thought one Rosh Hashiva after another was getting a Pras, and they were all getting it for research, biology, chemistry, physics. I wonder if that problem has been addressed in modern times. Okay, there's much more I can say on the tape, but as usual, Kelefam Malakekman Hayam, this year now draws to a close in the Rav's Shayurim, I have very, very big, uh, they should help me and give Kayach and strength. I have very big surprises and innovations for next year in the context of this course, but we'll leave that for next year. Uh, Yaakov, uh, do me a favor, shift tapes now, and uh, we move into a different world, and it's, I have a world to show you, and you, you won't forget what I'm going to show you. Go ahead.